we welcome you today to our last program of the year. Uh, just a few housekeeping notes. As I said, the program will be recorded. It will be available on our YouTube channel by hopefully by the end of this week. The PowerPoint is already up as a PDF on our website, I believe. And Eric is, is nodding yes. And I'm just going to ask at the bottom of the screen, there's both a chat box and a Q&A. Uh, if you would like to ask a question for us that we're going to have uh, for the end of the program, please put it in the Q&A um, and feel free to make comments, etc. Uh, hopefully they, they will be nice comments in the chat or to discuss things amongst yourselves in the chat portion. But we ask if you have a question for us, please do put it in the Q&A. We have a, a, a full presentation as um, those of you who've joined us before know, I tend to have a lot of content in my programs, but uh, there's not anything they need to remember. There's, um, you know, we have handouts, we have materials, we have the PowerPoint, uh, as I said, and the recording but all the resources are available for free on our website, nursinghome411.org. What we really wanna do um, in this program is to plug in with you and let you know about some of the things that we think are particular, particularly important. This program is focused on family and resident councils, particularly family councils, but the rights are the same for both family and resident councils pretty much. And also in regards to filing grievances, we will start off with a uh, with an update from Eric on COVID-19. Next slide, please. Uh, so just very quickly about us. Um, I think most of you know who we are, but we're the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We're entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living and other adult care facilities. We are also very proud to be the sponsor of two local long-term care Amazon programs in New York State. Uh, the focus of our work is policy analysis and systems advocacy. Uh, in addition, over the past nine years especially, we've been doing a lot of education, uh, such as this program of consumers and families, long-term care ombudsmen, and other stakeholders, the materials I mentioned before on our website uh, and resources, everything is free to use at nursinghome411.org. Uh, I'm Richard Mollett, I'm LTCCC's Executive Director. And next, I think you'll hear from Eric Goldwine, who is our Policy and Communications Director. Thanks, Richard, uh, for the intro. And we're gonna start off with a surprise homework <laughs> assignment. Uh, don't worry, it's an easy A, but we're just gonna ask you for a few favors, um, just as far as promoting LTCC and uh, getting access to some of our resources and materials. So I want you to pay attention to the chat box uh, where Sarah will be posting a few of these links. Um, but on this page uh, are, are a few ways where you can follow LTCCC. Uh, including signing up for our alerts and updates. And again, Sarah will be posting this link in the chat box. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, where we post this webinar and other videos. Uh, you can subscribe to the Nursing Home 411 podcast 
And that is both on Apple and Spotify. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review and a rating, uh, preferably five stars. It would really help LTCCC and help our um, outreach if you're if you take uh, thirty seconds and subscribe uh, on our Facebook page, which uh, is facebook.com/ltccc. You can get access to news reports, uh, not just from LTCCC, but from various news organizations, both local and national. And we also post really helpful links to our Twitter page to keep up with the latest news. And if you do one of those, you get an A. That's all you got to do, <laughs> just do one of those things. But if you want an A+, plus, uh, we only give out um, as many of these as we have. Um, the <laughs> LTCCC is a small organization, and with your help, we can make a big difference in residents' lives. Today isn't technically Giving Tuesday, but it is Tuesday, and we would uh, we would appreciate all your support that you can give. And when you support us, you support long-term care residents and help them get the care that they deserve. And uh, to do this, you can visit our website at nursinghome411.org uh, slash support our mission. And just as a bonus, I know a lot of you shop on Amazon uh, and, and other online shopping. And if you sign up for Amazon Smile, 0.5% uh, of your purchases will go to uh, you can do a number of nonprofits. Of course, we recommend LTCCC, but um, if there's any nonprofit or charity you want to donate to, it would be, um, it's a no cost to you. If you sign up for this, it's 0.5% of your purchases will go to uh, go to a charity. And same with I Give, where part of your purchases will go to LTCCC. And again, look at the chat box. Uh, Sarah just posted a bunch of links and we just ask that you uh, do a couple of those and you'll get an A plus. And moving on to our webinar. So we're gonna start with a COVID-19 data update uh, that I've been giving uh, each month. I've spoken before about how the cases, when we talk about the data on cases and fatalities, it doesn't capture the full extent of what's going on. We're now nine months into this and we're starting to see research, both quantitative and qualitative, that is confirming all of what we're hearing on the ground. So where there's research suggesting, and you've seen it with your two eyes, that uh, this virus has is leading to isolation. It's leading to uh, increased rates of abuse and neglect, uh, substandard care. Uh, we're hearing about residents suffering from touch starvation, uh, residents losing the ability to speak because they've been without human contact so long, uh, poor hygiene, which has people have gone nine consecutive months without a haircut. I was three months without a haircut and it was driving me uh, crazy. I can't imagine what nine months, this is not just a, uh, a cosmetics issue, it's a real health issue. Uh, there was a report in the Associated Press from last month uh, titled, Not Just COVID, I Strongly 
recommend reading that. And one of the researchers quoted in this report uh, cited, uh, I think I'm quoting indirectly, but for every two long-term care COVID victims, there's another who has died prematurely of other causes. And there have been 40,000 excess deaths since March. And that was from a month ago. And these numbers are climbing rapidly uh, there. And just more on the latest research um, on visitation restrictions. Uh, this website, ltccovid.org, is a compiling a lot of research studies, both uh, from long-term care in the U.S. and abroad. And what they're finding, uh, this won't shock you, is that visitation restrictions are associated with loneliness, with depression, behavioral problems, incidents involving aggression, and worse quality of care. So with that said, I just spoke to you about the non, the indirect secondhand effects of COVID. Uh, the direct effects of COVID are devastating in, in and of itself. There, uh, a Kaiser Family Foundation is tracking the cases and fatalities. And a few weeks ago, they called it a bleak milestone uh, as there have been more than 100,000 long-term care COVID deaths and almost a million cases in 27,000 facilities. Now it's important to note this varies by state, this varies by county, this varies by community. So there might be some hotspots in one town and the town next to it might, uh, might have relatively low rates. Uh, what we're also seeing, and this is uh, confirmed by several research studies, is that racial disparities that already existed are being exacerbated by COVID. Uh, nursing homes with a higher proportion of Black Hispanic residents are experiencing a higher share of COVID cases. And what the holidays will bring, we're very concerned uh, about the community spread. It's too early to tell what that exact um, effect will be. And just to, uh, before I move forward with the data, just a reminder to take the specific numbers with a grain of salt. There's instances of under-reporting. Um, when I last looked at the data, uh, 1,300 facilities did not submit data for the previous uh, week, um, the week ending November 29th, 2020. And there's data entry errors. And as I mentioned before, cases and fatalities are only a fraction of the story. And at the New York state level, we're seeing uh, uh, disturbing trends as we are at the national level. Uh, last week, when I reviewed the Department of Health numbers, uh, the, the total long-term care fatalities has surpassed 7,000, and this is in nursing homes and adult care facilities. You can see in the chart at the bottom of this page that these numbers are rising um, at an increasing rate. And these numbers do not include fatalities that have occurred outside of the long-term care facilities. And just to put it in context of what's going on overall in New York State, not just in long-term care, we're seeing cases rise, uh, deaths rise, and uh, COVID-related COVID hospitalizations rise. So please, everybody, be safe. Uh, take 
precautions. Um, and later on in this uh, in this webinar, I'll I'll give a brief tutorial on how to uh, how to find some of these numbers. Uh, but until then, I'm going to pass it off to Richard. Thanks, Eric. Um, very disturbing about the trends there. Um, thanks very much. Next slide, please. So I wanted to start off, we're going to talk about family and, you know, family counsel and resident counsel rights uh, and filing complaints, et cetera. But I just wanted to plug in with people because it's been uh, something of great concern to me since March that the federal government has waived certain standards, certain requirements for both nursing homes, for the oversight agencies, how the departments of health and other state agencies are actually inspecting or not inspecting facilities. But most importantly, I, the quality of care standards for nursing home care, the quality of life standards, cleanliness and grooming standards, toileting assistance, freedom from unnecessary pressure ulcers, freedom from unnecessary drugging, and other rights you know, related to care and quality of life have not been waived under COVID-19. And it's really, frankly, uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's tragic that so many residents have pretty much been left to their own devices to, uh, to fend for themselves. And it's true to a large extent for care staff as well, and pretty much abandoned by the system just when they need the system most to provide protections and to ensure that quality of care was was there. So, as I note here on the left, you know some of the some of the things that have been waived, uh, staff training requirements have been waived, which is really important for families and residents and ombudsmen to know that at the beginning of the pandemic, CMS said that um, they waived the requirements for training for nurse aides, and they waived the requirements for licensure for professional nurses like RNs and LP, LPNs. It's, I think, uh, particularly concerning and profound when it comes to the waiving of the training for CNAs, because normally CNAs have to have under the federal rules at least 75 hours of training, as well as pass you know, the, the certification program. A lot of states, including our home state, New York, have actually have increased requirements recognizing that 75 hours is not sufficient. Some of the better training programs have several hundred hours. Uh, I would say they generally have several hundred hours of training because think about it when you need to know how to treat a resident with dignity, when you need to know how to provide basic services, et cetera, that requires a lot of training, a lot of understanding of who the resident is, how to treat them respectfully, et cetera. What has happened instead is that, as I said, CMS waived that requirement for the duration of the pandemic, uh, emergency, excuse me, which continues. They're unfortunately not tracking who facilities are hiring. So facilities may be using nurse aides that instead of having 100 hours of training, have eight hours of training or even no hours of training. And we don't know who they are. The federal government, although we've pressed them on this several times, have not been tracking that, as I said. The industry is now is, pu is pushing for those people to essentially be grandfathered in. Uh, we certainly, at the coalition, don't want to see people pushed out of a job, and we want to encourage people to work in nursing homes, but they need to have the appropriate training, and, and those people need to be given the appropriate training in a timely manner. So this is something, you know, one of the waivers about which we're very concerned. But most importantly is that uh, from you know, the perspective of what 
I'm seeing, hearing from residents, hearing from ombudsmen, uh, hearing from family members in particular, is that you know nursing homes are just not providing basic services, toileting, grooming, as, as Eric had said, um, that they're not caring for residents, not providing toileting, et cetera, that there is an, just a horrible amount of neglect going on. And that's just not appropriate. All the standards um, regarding resident care and quality of life, residents' rights have not been waived. They still exist and they're supposed to be provided for residents every day. Next slide, please. So I wanna talk a bit about the, the rights of resident and family councils. The federal nursing home reform law, which has been in effect since 1987, says that nursing homes are required to protect and promote the rights of each resident, including a resident's right to organize and participate in resident groups and a family member's right to meet in the facility with the families of other residents. So that's been part of our requirements for now over um, 30 years. Next slide, please. And then the federal standards get into specifics about this. So under normal circumstances, family members and of course residents uh, would meet in a facility. The nursing home is required to provide a private space for that. That's not happening now, but I thought it was worth including here because uh, hopefully we'll be opening up again um, you know, in the not too distant future to, to residents of visitation and, and socialization, et cetera. But importantly here, as I noted in bold, that the nursing home is required to take reasonable steps with the approval of the resident or the family council to make residents and family members aware of upcoming meetings in a timely manner. So if you're operating your, your family council uh, via Facebook, via one of our Zoom rooms, uh, by phone, et cetera, you have a right to expect that the nursing home, let the nursing home know when those meetings will be and how people can contact you and the nursing home has to do that. So that, uh, you know, in too many cases, excuse me, we've been concerned that, you know, family members were meeting in person. Of course, they did not expect the pandemic emergency to happen. And all of a sudden they were cut off from each other. Uh, it's really here, it's important to note that the facility has a proactive responsibility to helping you as a family council meet. Um, now, again, this is one of the things, I don't want to take too much time, but it's one of the things that was waived in terms of meeting in person, of course, and as I'm sure you're all aware is that, you know, they're not holding meetings in facilities. Residents may not be able to meet in person at this time, but the facility should be doing, especially when it comes to family members who are outside the facility, they should be supporting family members in their ability to, ha to have uh, a sustained and engaged family council. Importantly here in bullet two, just want to mention staff and other, other guests may attend a resident or a family member council and only, excuse me, only at the invitation of the group. Uh, too often we hear that the staff or the facility is operating these as their own meetings. That is not appropriate. And if a facility is having its meetings, for instance, having a weekly call or a weekly Zoom meeting about what is going on in the facility with COVID, that is not a resident council meeting or a family council meeting. Again, this, these are driven by the family and the resident. And the point of these slides is to let you know that these, this is supported in both the federal rules and the federal law. Uh, now, lastly here, the facility must provide a designated staff person who is approved by the resident or family council 
and by the facility and who is responsible for providing assistance and responding to written requests that result from group meetings. So you see here you have uh, really a structure. All these are must. It's not the facility may, the facility can, if it feels like it. The facility must support the group. The facility must give the group privacy and the facility must assign a designated staff person that is approved by the group um, to be act as a liaison and to be responsive. Next slide, please. So last thing, I thought this was really important. Last thing in terms of the federal standards is that the facility must consider the views of a resident or family council and act promptly upon the grievances and recommendations of such group concerning issues of resident care and life in the facility. Again, must consider the views. Now, this means that the, excuse me, it doesn't mean that the facility has to implement any recommendation or do what the group says or is asking for. However, they have to be able, the facility has to be able to demonstrate that a response and that and a rationale for why they are doing what they're doing. Um, yes or no, you know, what, what they're doing in terms of responding to the, to the family council or the resident council. Next slide, please. So as I mentioned, you know, no need to, to memorize any of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, we have a fact sheet, resident and family councils. It's on our website, nursinghome411.org, uh, in the learning center, along with our other fact sheets. And this gives you all the information I spoke about, as well as more. Next slide, please. I want to talk a little bit about access to records. It's another issue that I've heard about from family members. Next slide, please. So, you know, what we hear, of course, because family members are not able to go into the facility, is that it's very hard for them to get records of what is going on with their resident. And when questions come up about, for instance, medication or the type of therapy services that a resident receiving is receiving or toileting services, et cetera, that the, um, or that the resident is getting or, or needs, excuse me, that the family member is not getting access to that information. So I wanted to include this here, so that the facility, <clears throat> excuse me, must provide the resident with access to personal and medical records pertaining to him or herself upon an oral or written request within 24 hours. And next slide, please. Since we're out of the facility, the facility must also allow the resident to obtain a copy of the records or any portions thereof, including in an electronic format or format when such excuse me, or format when such records are maintained electronically, excuse me, upon request and two working days advance notice to the facility. So again, two working days to receive the records in an electronic format if they are maintained electronically, or the individual can re request a copy. And that copy has to be, um, can only be charged, sorry about that. <laughs> the facility may only charge for that uh, to a reasonable degree. So we're hearing of people that are being posted, uh, excuse me, that, that are being uh, asked to pay pretty exorbitant fees for the copying of materials. Here, CMS, and this is again, CMS's language, the federal government, that the fee includes only the cost of labor, supplies for creating the paper copy, and postage when the individual has requested the copy to be mailed. So sorry, I got a little discombobulated on that slide, but I hope it makes clear that you have the right, and, and of course the family member takes the place of the resident. If the resident, you know, if they have that authority, 
uh, of the, the resident's um, representative. So the family member has the right, the resident's representative, whoever that is, has the right to ask for the information and to get a written copy of it. Next slide, please. <clears throat> uh, lastly, I'm gonna talk about complaints and grievances. Next slide, please. So this is always a matter of concern. People are worried, residents are worried, families worry that they may be subject to retribution. They, um, they, they also are concerned that their complaints may not be responded to. You know, I, I think you can't really speak generally to retribution, to someone being retaliated against for complaining, et cetera. But generally speaking, people who complain tend to get better care. Uh, people who have family members that are there that are, that are pushing for better care, those residents tend to get better care. Um, you know, it, it's, there is a possibility, and I don't wanna understate it, of someone being um, retaliated against. But again, generally speaking, when there are complaints, and especially complaints by family members where the facility is on notice that a third party is monitoring what's going on, uh, and is checking on their resident, that is a, um, generally is a beneficial thing to be doing. So what I wanted to talk about here are some of the residents' rights. And of course, they, they go to the family member, the family member is the representative, but the residents' rights to voice a grievance in the facility. Uh, importantly, I know this here in bold, in the second bullet, uh, complaints, grievances include those with respect to care and treatment that has been furnished, as well as that which has not been furnished by the facility or by the staff. Really important, this is language that comes directly from the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, understanding that the care may be poor or the care may be non-existent, may be absent, and you can complain about that. You can complain, have agreements about the behavior of staff, about other residents, the facility is responsible for maintaining a safe environment for all their residents. And that includes safety from, from staff abuse and, and abuse and neglect, excuse me, and from abuse or unwanted behavior of other residents, as well as, of course, other concerns regarding their stay in the long-term care facility. Um, the resident has the right to, and the facility must make prompt efforts to resolve grievances. Again, this is taken directly from the federal rules, not things that I am making up. The facility must establish a grievance policy to ensure the prompt resolution of all grievances regarding the resident's rights. Upon request, the nursing home must give a copy of the grievance policy to the resident or to the family. So here again, I know that these are really challenging issues to advocate for, especially when you're concerned about the safety of your resident, you're concerned about uh, potential uh, neglect or abuse. Uh, you know, it, it's very treacherous, it can be very scary, and it could be very intimidating. Uh, but all this language comes directly from the federal rules, and it's really important to know what your rights are. And this, again, also gets back to the value of having a family council, because the family council can state these with some level of anonymity. They can state it as a group rather than coming from an individual. And that's one reason why I think the family council can be so powerful. Next slide, please. 
so a little bit more about complaints and grievances. One thing that came about uh, a few years ago is the requirement for nursing home grievance officer. This came about in the 2016 federal rules when they were changed. And this is something that we and other advocates had called for because family member complaints, resident complaints about care, about quality of life, about treatment and dignity too often go ignored by the facility. And that's what I've heard all, you know, as I mentioned at the start, we've been doing a lot of focus and I really love doing it, focused work with, with residents and with, especially with families and ombudsmen. And knowing that, you know, hearing too often, I should say, that they'll make a complaint. They complain to the nurse on duty or they complain to the administrator and whoever they complain to says, okay, we're gonna take care of that problem. And then that problem reoccurs or it's not really responded to. Uh, so in the federal rules in 2016, there is a inclusion of a requirement that every facility has to have a grievance officer. Now, this is not someone who has to sit there like, like, like Lucy in the Peanuts cartoons with the sign out saying that the doctor is in and you know just sitting there for $50,000 a year or $80,000 a year, whatever that, that person would make. Um, but it has to be someone designated. So it could be a director of nursing. It could be someone in uh, administration, but that there is one central person that nursing homes are required to have who takes ownership of a resident's complaint, of a resident's grievance, does the necessary investigations on behalf of the resident, keeps confidentiality of the resident, if that's what the resident or the family member, whoever the complainant is, wants to have anonymity. And then, this was really important to, to us, includes written grievance decisions to the resident or to the family member. So upon request, you can ask for the decision to be made in writing. And they also have to coordinate with the state and the federal agency as necessary in light of specific allegations. That's the federal language. What that says to us is that if this is an issue of abuse, if it's an issue of a crime against a resident, um, that they have to, they, they have their own reporting requirements as a staff person, as a nursing home to report either to law enforcement, et cetera. They have the, the excuse me, the onus is on them to be doing that. So again, in short, this was one central place, one central person that we knew uh, was, you know, supposed to be responsible. Now, I think we need to beef this up. We need to do more to, to realize this, but the uh, we're, I'm really glad this is here. We're really glad this is here. This is one of the provisions that the um, Trump administration had uh, was trying to get rid of, but uh, hopefully the administration will, will finish up January 20th and we will still have this rule in place. Uh, we'll certainly let you all know about that, but in, in the meantime, this is an important rule. We expect it to be um, improved upon in the future. Next slide, please. And here is just the fact sheet. So again, you know, I know that I that we provide a lot of information, uh, but there's a fact sheet there that explains everything I provided uh, and more. It gives you the citation to where the rule is in the federal rules. So again, it's just not that that you know Richard Mollett uh, was saying these things to me. You can actually substantiate this with a two-page fact sheet. All our fact sheets are free. They're all, except for a couple of them, are two pages. So they're an easy printout that you can use and you know, family councils were using them, uh, ombudsman used them in trainings, advocates use them, uh, residents and families can use them with their facility to let the facility know what their rights are. Next slide, please. 
I just wanted to provide also some information about where to go to file a complaint outside of the facility. So of course the Ombudsman program is our number one recommendation. Uh, you know, go to the Ombudsman, uh, see if they can help you. The Ombudsman, although they are not regulators the way the State Department of Health or Department of Public Health is, they, they're the only ones who are really engaged on a day-to-day -day basis with what's going on in the facility for, from our perspective. And so they are definitely the first course of action. You know, clearly if someone is endangered, if it's a criminal situation, you, um, you should call the, uh, the state agency, the Department of Health, uh, perhaps call the police. Uh, but the Ombudsman program for, you know, most of the concerns about quality of care and quality of life are really a good place to start. And the Ombudsman can be tremendously helpful in uh, helping residents and families navigate those issues with their facilities. We also strongly support contacting your state and federal legislators, and we include the links here, openstates.org and congress.gov um, to contact your legislators. Too often when we do advocacy in, uh, in a state capital or in Washington, DC, we hear back from those legislative, you know, legislators or their aides that they generally only hear from the provider industry, from industry lobbyists. Nursing home residents don't have lobbyists. I, I don't really do a lot of lobbying at all. And I certainly don't spend my time walking around uh, schmoozing with legislators or people in Congress. So it's up to us to speak out. And I urge you to, to do that, to share that with friends and family so that they speak out too and let them know that that these issues are important or that you're facing a concern that the facility is not addressing. Same thing with the governor's office. Here you can look up your governor for contact information for any governor's office in the country. We strongly recommend contacting the state Medicaid fraud control unit. Uh, every state now has a Medicaid fraud control unit and they are charged under the federal law to be investigating abuse and neglect. And I think they're a great place to go. Uh, and lastly, in terms of agencies, are the CMS regional offices. We don't have a lot of time to get into it, but, but essentially we have, every state has a state agency, usually called the Department of Health or Department of Public Health, and they're chiefly responsible for enforcing the nursing home rules, making sure that those rules are realized in the lives of residents. The CMS regional offices, those are their bosses. Um, and a big issue for us over the years is that the is that the regional offices, frankly, don't do a very good job making sure that the states are doing a good job to oversee the residents. So again, I think that they need to hear from us. They need to hear when the rules are not being implemented, not being realized in the lives of residents. And then lastly, on the left-hand side, I included here the U.S. Attorney's Office. Every U.S. Attorney's Office and there, there are a lot of them across the country, has, should have an elder justice coordinator or a healthcare coordinator. If you have a quality of care case, this is only really for quality of care, not for, res, not for other residents' rights, but a quality of care issue, you can contact the elder justice coordinator in the, attorneys, in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Next slide, please. And I wanna talk a little bit about some online resources as well, because we've had some changes there. And also because those resources are a great place for families uh, and family councils to go to, 
to support their advocacy. So we've talked about the rules and that's really important, but talking about, you know, where do you go for information? How do you find out what's going on with your nursing home? Well, number one is what we used to call nursing home compare. They just changed this a couple of weeks ago. It's now called care compare. So it used to be called nursing home compare. It was the one place that we really recommended for finding out information on your nursing home. As I said, they just changed it. So it's medicare.gov forward slash, forward slash, excuse me, care dash compare. And you can find information about different provider types here. They combined everything. So they used to be a doctor compare, a hospital compare, a, a hospice compare. Those are all here, but you can, you can select nursing homes and you could find your nursing home here. Next slide, please. And this very quickly, maybe we'll do a deeper dive on another program, but I just wanted to show you what this looks like now. It's a bit of a change from the way it looked in the past. It's, I would say, a bit more difficult to get information um, than it was in the past on Nursing Home Compare. I'm hoping we've recommended some changes to CMS here and, and they are fairly open, I think, about at least some of those changes. But you can see here, you can, you can still get, this is the main page of the Waterview Center, it happens to be a center near my home in New Jersey. Um, one, it has the overall rating dentist. So you can see this is a two-star facility. It also has the breakup of the health inspection rating, the staffing rating, and the, what are called the quality measure rating. They call it quality of resident care. I think that's an overstatement. Um, it's not really quality of care. It's more of measurement of resident care but they provide that as well. And you can see just above that, there is above the overall rating, you can look at the different, we used to have tabs nursing home compare for the ratings, the quality, the details, and then the location. And then lastly, I just wanna point out, they also held over, you can see there's a red, um, a little red dot with a hand in it in the middle, looking like this next to the, thank you, Eric, next to the title, the Waterview Center, they, they continued on some of, the, um, some of the signage, essentially, that we and others had advocated for uh, to alert people when a nursing home has a history of abuse or neglect. That's the sign you're seeing here. There's also a different sign. It's more of a yellow warning sign for special focus facilities, meaning that it's one of the, um, one of the worst facilities, essentially, in the country is a special focus facility. But this red sign is one indicating that the facility has a history of abuse and neglect. Again, this is a federal website. Those of you who've attended our programs before know that by you know, far and away, it provides the best, most accurate information. It's not perfect. There are certainly um, some significant shortcomings, but it is better than, uh, than any other information that's out there. Next slide, please. I want to talk about a little bit about some of the resources that we have, and I'm going to turn it back to Eric. So first of all, we have staffing data on nursinghome411.org, our website. The staffing data is far and away the most accurate information that we have on the quality of care uh, in our nursing homes. Uh, it's one, as I said, the most accurate. It is also uh, perhaps the most important. Staffing is I would say, you know, the most important corollary to quality of care, uh, the higher the staffing, particularly, you know, it's essential, I should say, that the staff have the competencies, the skills, et cetera, to uh, provide the care uh, for what, you know, that they're hired for, 
but it's having competent staff and having sufficient staff that really is the number one uh, the number one criteria as far as I'm concerned. And of course, many studies have corroborated that in terms of resident care. 90% of care is provided by CNAs. They provide most bedside care uh, and they are extremely important. But recent studies have shown that in actuality, RN staffing levels are extremely important as a corollary, excuse me, for the quality of care and the safety of a nursing home. And that's, just, I would say, truer now than ever uh, with COVID-19 because the RN is essentially the only one in the facility who can provide a resident assessment, who is overseeing the care provided by the LPNs and the CNAs, medication management, et cetera. So that RN is extremely important. You're making sure that infection control protocols are being followed through. That's what an RN does. So that's why the RN is so important. So here you go to our staffing page at nursinghome411.org. Uh, it's under the data center. And you can look up staffing for your facility. It's for every facility in the country that's in compliance with reporting requirements with the federal PBJ, payroll-based journal reporting requirements. I know it's a mouthful, um, but so it may not be every facility, but it's about 99, I think it's about 99.5% of facilities now. It's pretty high. Um, have their, their data reported. Next slide, please. So that file, that they, excuse me, the data that they report, that's published every quarter in one enormous file for every day of the quarter, 90-day period, for every single facility in the country that reports for uh, RNs, for LPNs, for CNAs, for contract staff, for a whole range of non-care staff. What we do uh, to make it easier for you to use this information in a useful way is that we download those data and we average them out for the quarter. So you can see on average what your facility is providing in the way of staffing for some of the staffing measures that we have identified as, you know, not just me, not just LTCCC, I should say, but that, you know, that have been identified by experts as most important. So as I mentioned before here on this sheet, this is the direct care staff, uh, includes data about the RN hours on average, say the LPN hours, the CNA hours. Uh, and then what we do is we average that out because we know, you know, from federal studies that you essentially need at least 4.1 hours of direct care staff time um, to meet the needs just the clinical needs, I should say, of a typical resident. So facilities should really have 4.1 hours. What you know, research has shown over the years is that about 75% of facilities fall below that. And what that tells us is really two things. One is that as we know, because that's why we're all here, um, that's why the ombudsman exists, that's why um, lawyers are in this field, that's why advocates like us are in this field, uh, a lot of nursing home care, far too much nursing home care is poor. Um, nursing homes tend not to be a great place to live or to get care. Why? As I said, staffing is most important and because most facilities do not have sufficient staff. But on the other hand, those data showed that 25% of facilities do. So it's not impossible. It's not one out of a million. It's not one out of, out of the 15,000 facilities in the country. Um, but that 25% of facilities too, it can be done. Um, we can have safe staffing. And then lastly, 
uh, of that 4.1 hours, about 0.75 or more, really at least 0.75, should be care provided by a registered nurse. So we break that down. The one thing that we do in terms of a calculation, besides the averaging for the quarter, is we provide the average um, hours per resident day for total care staff and for RN care staff. So you can use that information to see how your facility measures up against you know, the 4.1 um, you know, uh, expected, I shouldn't say expected, but really minimum standard that we would expect, uh, as well as how it measures up against other facilities. Now, it's really important uh, before we move on, just to quickly say, those are overall averages, but a facility is responsible always to have sufficient care staff and supplies, et cetera, to meet the needs of the residents based upon the residents' individual assessment and their plan of care, their goals for their care, et cetera. Nursing homes, uh, I hate to say it, are not storage units. Nursing homes, you know, they're, they're not a place where we are, we're selling goods. This is a resident's home, people who are typically extremely vulnerable and, and rely on their nursing home for 24 hour a day monitoring care. That is by definition what a nursing home resident is. So 4.1 hours is generally considered a baseline, but if a facility needs more, it should have more. And if it, if it, even if it has say 4.5 hours, but its residents are not getting the services they need, that is not enough under the federal rules. It's as hard, you know, it, it's hard advocacy work, frankly, but it's something that we can turn to. It provides us with some baseline information, provides us with the data, et cetera. And then just quickly before I move on, I just want to point out that once you go to, you know, if you click on the state on our website on the staffing page and you get this file, you can search for a provider name so you can go directly to your facility. You can also um, select the city that you're interested in or the county or counties in which you're interested in and just pull out those numbers. So if you're looking, if you're, if you're making a choice about, thanks Eric, I was pointing that out. If you are making a choice about a facility or helping someone who's making a choice in their community, you can look and see, uh, well, this is how the facilities compare on this very important criteria. And if you're a local or a state ombudsman or advocate, you can do the same thing. You can really look and measure between different regions, between different cities, et cetera. And, and that makes it really drills down the information, I think, in a useful way. Next slide, please. So I'm just gonna to quickly um, touch on this. So we also provide information on contract staffing, which I don't think we're including here, uh, again, because I don't wanna spend a lot of time on it in this program, uh, and non-care staff. So this is just a sample of the non-care staff page, which looks very similar to the direct care staff and the contract staff page. This only provides information about the non-care staff in the facility. And as I mentioned, the federal, the, the federal database, the federal um, file is enormous. So we didn't pull out all the non-care staff, but we pulled out ones that we thought were important, such as average administrator hours in a facility, average medical director hours in a facility, average pharmacist hours in a facility, the average amount of time that residents get to spend with a social worker or with a recreation person. Those things are all really important and as a, Family counsel, especially, you can use this information 
for instance, I was very surprised when I first started looking at these data three years ago that a lot of facilities have the equivalent of zero hours or even you know less than, than, than a few hours a day of a medical director time. Who's providing medical direction in that facility? Who's overseeing the care provided to residents? Same thing with an administrator. Administrator has an important role. We actually have a fact sheet on the role of the administrator because that's really important to make sure that the facility is being run to meet the, in a way that meets the needs of its, of its residents. Um, but if you have a facility has very little in the way of administrative hours, who is doing that? What's going on there? Uh, so again, this is just laying out some things that you can ask that can be useful for your advocacy, hopefully, um, and you know, points of information that might be of interest. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna turn it over to you, Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. And just to continue with the data theme, uh, I'm gonna talk about some of the COVID data sets that I mentioned earlier in the webinar program. And also uh, you'll see in the chat, Sarah posted the second quarter 2020 staffing data report, which is crucial data in terms of understanding what was happening at these facilities at the height or the, uh, there are many heights of this pandemic, but at the early um, early spring stages. Um, so it was the second quarter, so that would be April, May, and June. Uh, but I'm going to talk to you about using the COVID data um, that's on our website. And these posts are available at um, uh, nursinghome411.org or facility level COVID data. Um, it's in this webinar slide. What LTCCC is doing is posting COVID data for every uh, US skilled nursing facility on a user-friendly spreadsheet. This data is from, uh, is from the CMS website. Uh, each nursing home reports data to the CDC. And what we do is we pull that data and convert it into a user-friendly spreadsheet. As you see below, uh, these data are uh, include cases, it includes fatalities. It also includes information on staff shortages, on whether a facility has sufficient PPE. And what you can do, as Richard mentioned before, with the staffing data and really any Excel spreadsheet, is you can click that little triangle next to each column and sort your data by a, a certain county, by a city, um, by any category. So I live in Astoria, and what I did was I was interested in what's going on in Queens. So I uh, clicked this, and I'll show you on the next slide. Um, I clicked the this little triangle here, and I typed in Queens, and it sorted it by Queens. Now, this data is posted on our website um, at the link mentioned on the, uh, this link down here in the bottom right corner. And when you go to the website, you click this purple button here, and it'll open the spreadsheet. And from there, you can... Uh, see what's going on at a facility, at a city, at a county, at every level. And uh, this spreadsheet also has, uh, in addition to COVID-related data, it, it includes information on staff shortages. You can also go to the PPE tab to see a facility's uh, PPE status, whether they're reporting a shortage of N95 masks, whether they're reporting a sufficient supply of eye protection, 
Um, and again, these are, I believe these are self-reported. So um, I, if you're seeing something that differs from what they're reporting, um, that, that might be significant. Um, so I wouldn't take these, uh, these, every single one of these data points as 100% truth, but this is what is being reported. We are also posting, uh, as I mentioned before, New York fatality data on this link uh, on the bottom right corner. These data are posted, we post them every two weeks to our website on Nursing Home 411, and they include nursing homes and adult care facility uh, data, um, and confirmed COVID deaths and presumed COVID deaths. Uh, as mentioned before, these data exclude fatalities that occur outside the facility. Uh, as with the previous spreadsheet uh, I mentioned a minute ago, you can sort this by different categories. You can see what the latest trends are. Uh, there's a 14-day increase column uh, that can help you understand whether there's been a recent spike in a certain county. Um, you can also look at individual nursing homes by going to the nursing home tab or individual adult care facilities. And again, you can filter by county. You can sort it to see which nursing home has the most deaths, has the least. There's different things you can do with this spreadsheet. And back to you, Richard. Thanks, Eric. Uh, so I just wanted to leave you with a few resources. I want to leave some time for questions and answers too. So um, pretty much all, well, all the information is on our website, of course. Uh, the data is in the data center, which you can see at the top. And this is the learning center where we have uh, information and resources, including the fact sheets, handouts, uh, the recordings of webinars can be accessed through here, our family and Amazon Resource Center, uh, et cetera. Next slide, please. This is our family and Amazon Resource Center. I just wanted to plug in that it's one we have, you know, uh, we, we try to make a number of connections throughout the website to different resources so that people don't have to go to only one specific place that wherever they're looking, they could hopefully find the related resources that they, that they want or that would be useful. But I wanted to encourage you all um, family members and Amundsman and others who are working with families that we have a free Zoom room for family councils in which they can meet remotely. We provide it privately for them. Um, we, um, you know, it, we ask if we can attend. It's entirely up to the family council whether they want that or not, but it's a private family council room that they could use, a Zoom room that they could use to meet remotely. And you could do that both through Zoom as we're doing now, video, and or you can do it by phone. So people can join by phone too, if you just wanna have a phone connection. Next slide, please. Uh, and then again, we ha also have, excuse me, under our learning center forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy. So a lot of different resources here for um, family council meeting notices, family council agendas, uh, things that you can use. You're free of course to adopt them into any way that you like, but we want to make, we want to provide a framework for um, resources for you, uh, if you're a family member or if you're working with family members, to share with them to make it as easy as possible for um, for your advocacy. Next slide, please. So this is just our fact sheet again. As I mentioned, you know, we're providing a lot of information. I know, but here we have a fact sheet 
for resident and family council record keeping. We have two abbreviated versions you can see in the yellow and the blue on the right hand side for tracking resident preferences and for tracking resident concerns about care. And we have actually forms for those as well that are a little bit, you know, they're more of standalone, either which you can use, but again, just, you know, we wanna provide you with, and family members and residents with as easy to use accessible resources as possible. Eric and I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can make the resources, you know, better, um, you know, uh, all the time. <laughs> Thanks, next slide, please. Our next webinar, I'm really excited. We're usually we hold them the third Thursday of the month. We're moving this up a week. We're holding the next one on third, third Tuesday of the month, excuse me. We're holding the second Tuesday of January, January 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's gonna be on COVID-19 vaccinations and nursing homes, nursing home residents, and of course staff. We have a special guest speaker. Uh, her name is Beth Niven. She's a master of public health. She worked for close to three decades with the New York City Department of Health and mental hygiene. She's also a long-term care ombudsman. I think it'll be a terrific program. Uh, you can register by going to the events page on our website. Eric put the, um, the link down here, but either way, uh, it'll get you there. If you've signed up for our notices, you'll get it there as well. Uh, next slide, please. And then we're gonna open up for questions and comments. We have a link here at the bottom of the slide for long-term care ombudsman. If your supervisor allows you to get credit, for attending this as a training program, please take a quick survey and we'll let them know. It's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. And I put it in bold type there. Uh, thanks. And it's 158. I think we'll stay on for, um, for till 205 or so. Uh, for those of you who are able to stay on and answer a few of the questions. But thanks everyone for attending and wishing you uh, hopefully a better 2021 than we had in 2020, but please stay safe and um, have a happy and healthy holiday season. Uh, and again, we're gonna continue for another seven minutes or so with Q&A. Sarah? Thank you guys for a wonderful uh, webinar. Um, medical records questions. Can a facility charge if the residents on Medicaid or Medicare or if the facility or if the family can't afford the medical uh, records? So as far as I know, the facility can charge. Now I would, you know, you know, if I was in a situation and the family member couldn't afford to, um, you know, I would ask them if they could do an accommodation, maybe speak to the ombudsman uh, for the facility or your local ombudsman program and see if they can help you navigate that. But the facility is allowed to charge. Um, about grievance policy questions. Does the facility have to provide the family council with a policy or just the residents? Um, so the family, they should provide that to the family council as well. And I would use those rights um, that we spoke about earlier if there was any pushback. And you know, there's, when I talk about you know, using the rights, it doesn't mean one has to be, or I'm not suggesting being confrontational, but say, look, we know that we're entitled to this. And as the residents representatives, um, they certainly have the right to, to receive it. So the family council in and of itself may not, but the, res, the family members, excuse me, certainly do as representatives of their resident. Are grievances kept on file and reviewed during surveys to ensure the process is being followed? That's a good question. I think that the requirement is that they do keep grievances on file. Um, 
for for at least a certain amount of time. But don't forget, this is confidential, and I don't think it would be used for a survey unless, it, as I noted earlier on, it, the grievance officer has a responsibility to take that to the appropriate authorities. Uh, so if it is a complaint that rises to, say, a regulatory infraction or an endangerment of the resident, they should be taking that to um, the you know, Department of Health if necessary, or to law enforcement, the Medicaid fraud control unit, et cetera. So then it would become part of a, uh, not a public record, but a record that other authorities could, could see. So you've given many suggestions on what to do in cases of grievances, but what about when it's a more subtle retribution? Like I asked someone to help my grandmother to the bathroom and she said, don't complain, you won't be here tomorrow. Don't complain, you won't be here tomorrow. Um, well, I think that's, to me, that's not pretty subtle. To me, that's pretty blatant. That's, that, that's, that's completely inappropriate. And it's, it's abusive of the resident. Uh, I would you know, probably first speak to the ombudsman. As we mentioned before, you know, going to the ombudsman first um, would be probably most constructive. And, uh, you know, and if, the, you know, it's difficult now because we don't have ombudsman going into facilities for the most part, but I would call my local ombudsman program, you know, contact their office and see if they can help you with that. But that's certainly not a, um, to me, that's not subtle at all. That's a pretty, um, that's pretty obnoxious. So if you take your complaint to the ombudsman, can the ombudsman submit a grievance to the grievance officer? Um, I would say that the ombudsman would really be helping you submit a, a complaint to the grievance officer. Uh, I don't want to speak for the for the ombudsman program, but generally speaking, the grievance officer is for you know the resident, the resident's representative. Um, but I would say you know, and this, I would want to obviously defer. You know, I would defer to the ombudsman program about about this and how they are um, handling these issues. But I would say if someone needed help with uh, with that that the ombudsman could help them do that. But I would check spe you know, specifically with my ombudsman program. Um, leaving grievances, poor hygiene. Are we hearing that shower restrictions are taking place? Yeah, well, we're not hearing, I'm not hearing in that so many words, but I'm hearing from, unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, that their family member is not groomed that their family members not dressed in the appropriate clothing, like not their own clothing, or that they're wearing the same thing day after day after day, and it's clear that it wasn't washed because it's disheveled. So really, really horrible, you know, basic dignity, cleanliness, things are not being met. So yeah, those are the types of things that we are, that we are hearing, unfortunately. And again, I know we only have another couple of minutes left. This is, um, uh, this is not appropriate and it's not acceptable under COVID-19. Nursing homes are being paid to, uh, and they, they agree to meet the needs of residents, including uh, treating them with dignity, uh, appropriate grooming, and of course, care. Can a family member start their own independent family council meeting? Absolutely. I mean, if there's, if there's a family council in the facility that is meeting independently, then they really should be one family council. I, I don't suggest, and I've heard of this, and sometimes they become practitioners, et cetera. Uh, I think that, you know, there's no, nothing in the rules, and I really pretty much provided the rules um, verbatim 
um, that says that there should be multiple family councils or that the facility has to pay attention to multiple family councils. So I would say, you know, if, if there's a family council and it's again being run independently, not being run by the nursing home, then I would suggest working with that family council uh, as being one voice for residents. I think we're gonna wrap it up there. Um, thank you again, everyone for joining us. I really appreciate uh, your time. Thank you, Eric and Sarah. And we wish you a happy and healthy and thank you all for your, for your advocacy um, on behalf of residents. It really does make a difference. So with that, have a happy new year and we'll see you next year.